Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. God bless you, get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. God bless you folks and get woke. Good to be here with you as always. Reverend Matsumela Mapfumo, Mark Thompson. Always thank you for tuning in to make it plain. The Mass Poor People's Assembly coming up June 20th, the day after Juneteenth. And we've been talking about it, sharing some of the personal stories from people who are impoverished in America. This movement led by the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber Jr. and the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. I have another personal story for you today, Carla who's a deaf college student at Gallaudet University in Washington, DC. What about poverty in the deaf community? Carla's gonna talk to us about it as we share some of the personal stories from the Poor People's Campaign, june2020.org. Here's Carla. Hello. I'm thrilled to be a part of this event tonight, representing the deaf community. Let me introduce myself. My name is Carla Mendez Guerrero. I am deaf, 
And I'm a second year school, a second year at Gallaudet University. I'm majoring in psychology and I'm also part of student body government. I'm the director of equity. And I'd like to talk about the impact of poverty in my community. Unemployment in our community is so high. Many deaf people have to rely on supplemental security income, but that's not enough for us to live on because the payments we get are an average of just $771 a month. Who can afford to live on just $771 a month? I myself am the first in my family to go to college. And I do admit I have struggled, I've been struggling financially. My father's income increased recently, but then that resulted in them cutting my financial aid. So his increase in income isn't enough to support my schooling. College is so expensive, I'm overwhelmed. There are actually 120 students at Gallaudet that have had to leave due school due to financial issues. They can't afford food, their dorm, their transportation. That's actually 10% of our student undergrad student body at Gallaudet. We're trying to follow our dreams, but it, they seem impossible without support. And it's, it's hard for our community if they leave college. It's even harder for them then to find a job because of the discrimination that we face from employers. And there's also just not enough good paying jobs to help us survive. And I believe this is not right. As a member of this community, well, recently our president has cut, has proposed cuts in SSI and SSD. And that means that some of us won't be able to afford health care. I am here because I believe that the Poor People's Campaign is the right battle for us. I believe that we need equality and that we all need the opportunity to live. Thank you. That's uh, Carla, a student at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., talking about poverty and its impact on the deaf community. Poverty affects us all, as we know. Folks, uh, be a part of the Poor People's Mass Assembly coming up June 20th. Go to june2020.org, the Mass Poor People's Assembly and Morrow March on Washington. to welcome to Make It Plain our guest today. She previously covered the intersection of race, politics, youth, and immigration for the Boston Globe. She shared a Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing and was a Pulitzer finalist as a member of the Globe Spotlight Team investigation into racism in Boston. Her reporting has won a number of other national awards, including the NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists Salute to Excellence Award, the ONA's Knight Award for Public Service, and a National Headliner Award for Journalistic Innovation. Before her time at The Globe, she covered education and public safety for the South Florida Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale. She's a graduate of the University of Miami 
and alum of the John S. Knight Journalism Fellowships at Stanford. She is currently a narrative healthcare reporter for ProPublica. Happy to have with us today. We're going to discuss her latest at ProPublica in terms of the Black Lives Matter protesters and the intersection with that issue and COVID-19. Happy to have Akila Johnson here with us. Akila, bless you. Welcome to Make It Plain. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. How, how are you and yours uh, faring in this uh, pandemic? We are managing and managing as best as can be expected. So thank you for asking. Okay, good, good, good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. So, um, but you, you actually went down to the protests and talked mm -hmm. to people, didn't you? I did. I did. What, was that was that risky for you to do? Did that cross your mind as you were doing that? I mean, because people were down there, weren't a lot of social distancing, weren't a lot of masks. But what, I mean, it was, what, what was your process in terms of thinking of that and, and all of that? It was definitely something, um, yes, right? You, you, you can't do something like that without considering the risk. But at the end of the day, you know, and I told my mother about it afterwards, not before. So I'm not going to sit here and say that, the, that you know, that, that there were some risks to be considered. And that was one of them. Um, but in all seriousness, I just wanted to know what was on the mind of the people. You know, we are in the midst of this pandemic that um, Black communities in particular are bearing the brunt of. And that is happening at this time when um, the country is having a reckoning about police brutality. And so as we're talking about racism and as we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we've been talking about racism in healthcare. And so I wanted to know if it was on the minds of folks who were then out there in the midst of this pandemic, talking about racism and police brutality and proclaiming Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, as journalists, sometimes we're called to go in the war zone, so you can't really get away from it. You know, if, if that's if that's what we're called to do. So you found people who articulated to you, didn't they, the intersection between both, um, um, Corona and and the cops. Well, absolutely, because you know, yes, right. It's the intersection of both. Because when people show up to protest, when people show up at any event, you show up as your whole self. You know, and so as you're showing up with your whole self and as we are in this moment and we're talking about race, and I was particularly talking to black protesters. I wanted to know what was on the minds of black protesters and how they were thinking about processing and being impacted uh, by the pandemic. And if that was part of the motivating factor for them to be out protesting, if it you know, was something that was on the minds of protesters and how they themselves were processing that intersection of um, how racism plays out in a, a variety of ways in Black people's lives. And, you know, over and over I heard, yes, I am aware. Yes, I am aware that the pandemic, you know, is killing Black people at twice the rate of, of other folks. And also, it is very much on my mind as I'm sitting here, in part just because I have family members who have died because of this. I have friends who have died because of this. I have lost my job because of this. And so it was really kind of unpacking all of that with protesters mm -hmm. at, in that moment, but then also some conversations that happened afterwards over the past. Did, 
did any of them e express even, you know, in this pandemic, the risk of protesting and being outside like that in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, was there a self-awareness that, hey, I'm doing this, but I might actually get COVID from being out here? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so one of, um, so two of the people that I spoke to was a grandmother and a grandson, 62-year-old grandmother and her 20, now 21-year-old grandson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had a, they had a really serious conversation before they decided to go out and protest on this Tuesday. And it was the Tuesday after um, the area around the White House had been cleared so that the president could take his walk to St. John's Episcopal Church and hold up the Bible. And so that was also part of the motivating factor for, for folks to be there. Um, but he, yes, they talked about, is this worth the risk? Is, is it worth the risk of, of, of putting myself and sacrificing my body to this virus? You know, so this is a 62-year-old woman. She's got chronic lung um, condition, which puts her at high risk of catching the virus, you know, so much so that she'd been tested twice because she fit these high-risk categories and had tested negative both times. But as she thought about her own life and her own experiences with racism and then her grandson's experiences at, you know, 21 and what he had gone through. And I mean, at that time, he was having nightmares where he was, you know, fighting, as he calls it, an old Jim Crow-looking white man and, you know, goes on to describe what the guy was wearing in terms of white button-down shirt you know, small tie, sleeves rolled up. And as he's processing the dream with his mother, his mother's like, you're fighting racism. And in fighting that racism, he, you know, says to me, if it's not police killing us in the streets, it's us dying in a hospital bed because of the pandemic. And this is a rising senior at North Carolina A&T. And so it was definitely on people's mind. I mean, he wouldn't even hug his grandmother prior to, prior to the uprisings that have begun to, you know, take root across the country. But it was important enough for him and it was important enough for them to be out there to add their bodies and their voice to this movement. And, you know, very well aware that they could possibly be sacrificing themselves to this virus or to violence because it also wasn't clear what the response was going to be from law enforcement at that point. Um, you, you also spoke to someone I see who had articulated to you that um, he knew a handful of people who have actually died from mm -hmm. COVID, right? And so, yes. And so, you know, he I spoke to um, a young man named William Smith, mm -hmm. 27, and he, you know, his sign was kill racism, something like kill racism, not me. And so when I began talking to him and he was kind of standing alone, looking very somber, you know, Police brutality was very much the motivation for top of mind for why he was there. But as we began to talk about COVID and the pandemic and its impact on him, he was like, absolutely. You know, I know a handful of people who have died and they died for the reasons that we see a lot of the, the health disparities that put black people at increased risk for, out, you know, worse outcomes because of COVID. Um, cramped housing conditions, jobs that are make them essential workers that make it impossible for folks to work from home and have to be out interacting with the public at increased risk of exposure. Um, you know, issues with access to medical care. You know, we spoke to, and so that was top of mind and, and in his mind and kind of in his consciousness and, and, and as he's standing out there protesting police brutality. And then he watched 
George Floyd die on camera and it's enough is enough, you know, enough is enough, tired of being tired were kind of common refrains that I heard from folks that were out there that I interviewed that I can't just keep sitting at home watching this, sitting at home tired, sitting at home crying, sitting at sitting at home, I have to be here in this moment. You even had a, a, at least one preach out there in front of St. John's while they were playing F the police, not exactly a church song. Now I'm a minister, I don't have a problem with it. It's one of my favorite songs, but <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's not for everybody. Probably wouldn't play it in church. But uh, it was outside the church, it was on a speaker outside, you know, it was a protest, it was a protest. They turned it down when the when the prayer, when the interfaith prayer group started. They, yeah. they shut the music down. <laughs> but again, that's just another one of the the things one is going to abide in what is really a state of emergency like this. You're gonna obviously, as people did, risk COVID uh, and, and risk some profanity. I mean, you know, and so you have, you, you have this collection of, of people who are in this space. And, and I say a collection of folks because you, know, you come from various faith traditions were there in that moment. Um, different ways of expressing Frustration and anger from you know NWA's protest song to rabbis and ministers bowing their heads in these solemn moments of prayer to grandmothers and grandsons who are saying this is kind of like an intergenerational way of passing down kind of the spirit of resistance in the face of injustice. You know, young millennial, white, black, Asian, intergenerational groups and stay-at-home people who call, you know, soccer moms who are out there protesting in this moment, too. So, we, yes, it's cut across a variety of demographics. So, and and then also, you spoke to an, an Ethiopian, who, whom you describe, an Ethiopian soccer mom, or at least that's how she looks. Uh, and the police kind of um, person handled, a woman handled her, didn't they? So she was, yeah, so Elizabeth Sahai, um, She'd been in her car throughout the day. So the protest kind of, it started earlier in the day. There was a small crowd of people. The roads were still open. There was still some car traffic driving. You know, and she explained that she went down. She This wasn't her first day driving. She'd driven down there before, but she decided to drive. And when she first got down there, um, she kind of drove down, parked nearish in the middle of the protest area. And she had... Um, Nas playing very loudly, but kind of, you know, absorbing the moment and then decided to, to drive slowly down the street. And the streets at that point in time, it's not like the police had come in and blocked it off to car traffic or shooed cars away because there were other cars in the area. And she stopped at an intersection, kind of honking in, in support um, and observing what was happening around her. And when the federal agents behind a barrier told her to move. She said, arrest me, I can't breathe. And, and they did not arrest her, they detained her. And if you, if we have the video of her being detained. I mean, she was pulled from her car, thrown on the ground, zip tied slash handcuffed, and then, you know, taken back behind this barricade, asked a variety of questions while her car, mind you, is left unlocked, windows down, in the middle of the street, surrounded by thousands of protesters. Kind of one of the beautiful moments of the protest was watching the way the protesters kind of protected her car in a way, you know, like 
she got her property back at the end of that experience. Her license, her license was on her, but her phone, her purse, right. her, her belongings were in that moment protected by protesters and returned to her after she was released. And, you know, her detainment didn't last long. So did they just detain her on the scene or did they take her away? They detained her on the scene and asked her, you know, she said Secret Service asked her if she planned to use, they were worried she was going to use her car as a weapon, um, according to her, because that, there had, there have been incidences of people running their cars through protesters. Her response was how many of them have been black, according to the, <laughs> the back and forth that she says she had with the Secret Service, who didn't respond to my queries about the incident. But, and then she, you know, she was released. And, 15 minutes later or so mm -hmm. and got in her car and, you know, got in her car and kind of left. And she, she came back to much enthusiasm from the crowd because, you know, the whole video shows when she was detained and taken behind the fence, kind of the group of protesters going, almost trying to reclaim her and really questioning, why are you arresting her? Why are you detaining her? She didn't do anything. Um, yeah. I, I, and, but you also mentioned, I, I think it's interesting um she it was from uh, she's from Ethiopia yes yes and so she apparently had um had some uh, experience um with matters of regime i think so you know it was interesting cuz she and i spoke later about about that and 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 what it was like so she grew up in Ethiopia and came to the united states um for college you know, and she talks about growing up um, during the Red Terror and seeing, you know, dead bodies in the street and what that does to to the psyche of young people. And then just kind of living in a society that curfew, where everybody has to be home at a particular time and there are tanks rolling down the streets and kind of, you know, armed, um, armed military enforcing these curfews and just how she never... She didn't know life without a curfew until she came to the U.S. And now that she's here, you know, the fact that it's all of the things, right? It was her experiences giving birth and, and, and bias and pushback while she's giving birth. Her brothers who live in Minneapolis, you know, they're driving while Black experiences. It was watching, you know, how Christian Cooper couldn't bird watch in Central Park. And then it was watching the forceful removal of peaceful protesters that really kind of sent her over the edge because of that experience growing up under authoritarian regime. Yeah, yeah. Um, Akila as, as a part, and, and a great story. Um, Thank you. And, and obviously your reputation as a journalist uh, uh, precedes you. Um, and congratulations on, on all of your awards. In terms of what you're going to be doing going forward, looking at all of this, uh, is there any journalistic curiosity on your part as to, you know, whether or not any of these protesters, um, even the ones you may not have interviewed, but whether or not there's a result, it, it, it results in a spike of COVID, uh, either in the area or amongst protesters. Um, are, are you curious about that at all? Oh, curious about it you know and I've already started kind of paying attention and you're seeing reports come out of since Memorial Day certain places are seeing spikes and you know the conversation will further be complicated I believe in kind of complicating the narrative about 
what that means, you know, and I think that, that you're seeing and you're hearing various public health officials kind of parsing um, the nuances of that. And, and that's, you know, part of the reason for speaking to people, protesters themselves, what their motivations were for being out there. And if it was a concern of theirs, and it was, of course, a concern for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it was a concern for everybody. That's not accurate. Everyone was aware. There were some people who have deep distrust of the government. So, you know, they are questioning numbers and where we're at and 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 not really trusting what the government is saying. Uh, some other folks told me they are aware. They weigh the, they weigh the risk, but they don't, you know, they don't live by fear they live by faith and their faith is bigger than fear and so that's why they're out there and then there were other folks who were just very pragmatic about it and say yes i understand that this puts me at exposed risk and it puts some other people in my life at exposed risk but yeah know. when i was reading about the 62 year old uh i was like whoa you know i mean i i, I if if my mother was still alive at that age i would probably not have let her come out there uh, like you said, you didn't tell your mom until later you asked for forgiveness rather than permission. But I suspect you, too, probably wouldn't have invited your mother to go out there with you. Um, so so that's a heavy thing. But, you know, you, you one line I want to lift up in, from your piece and then ask your question. You write, when speaking out against the loss of black lives, it is tough to separate those who die at the hands of police from those who die in a pandemic that has laid bare the structural racism baked into the American health system. Now, as you are the narrative healthcare reporter for ProPublica, which folks, as you always say, ProPublica is, is one of my favorite uh, um, um, publications or, or websites, so to speak. You all should support it because you don't get this kind of journalism anywhere else. Please, ma'am, please, sir. Go to ProPublica.com. ProPublica.org, forgive me. Yes. Um, what what's your take on and I'm sure you've heard it before we've heard it before because we're black but now we're beginning to hear uh some not so black and more mainstream institutions begin to say what you and I have probably heard and been saying ourselves that racism itself is a public health crisis mm-hmm. and and there was a major organization I can't remember I think just said it a few days ago and I was like whoa I mean even they're saying that so that being the case, as a as a healthcare reporter, what's happening with the police or in this police demic, so to speak, that is a COVID or not COVID. That in and of itself is a matter of healthcare, is it not? And 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 healthy lives. So so yes, and so like one of the things, like as we've been going, I'm going to put this in a COVID context, but you're absolutely right; it extends sure. beyond that. I'm putting it in a COVID context because one of the first stories um, that we did looking at the intersection of race and this pandemic or, you know, early data was showing that that Black folks were, were bearing the brunt of this. We spoke to people in um, Milwaukee, Public Health Commissioner in Milwaukee, and part of the reason that, that that city was able to respond to the pandemic the way that they did, because they had determined racism, they had deemed racism a public health crisis before we were in the middle of a public health crisis in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so that informed their response, but in under, it, it informed their response and understanding the variety of ways that racism impacts your health and public health 
and how, yes, police violence and state violence and the stress of racism and the stress of just being black in this country contributes to a phenomenon that helped um, experts talk about called weathering, you know, where you're literally it shortens your life expand. Like it creates the biological weathering of the body, right? And so as we are talking about in this moment, Black Lives Matter, there's Black Lives Matter, you know? And so let's talk about Black lives and the loss of Black lives. And as folks are out protesting and marching um, against police brutality, like I said, people show up with, with their whole selves. And so more and more, you are now seeing various medical associations and different organizations begin to try to unpack that racism as a public health crisis and how racism overall affects the lives of, of Black people. I saw a tweet recently that said something um, along the lines of, great, you were discovering um, structural racism and policing, and then it listed a whole myriad of other ways that racism shows up, and it said, buckle up, because you were in for a long ride. And so... I'm, I'm looking at some of the recent news. So for example, uh, there's Wisconsin, Indianapolis, Dayton, Akron, uh, I think even Seattle, I mean, several cities are taking this up and deciding whether or not to declare racism as as a public health crisis. And, and obviously, you and I both know it is. It's, it's high time uh, that others begin to to realize it. But as we look all over the country, people are not allowing COVID mm -hmm. to keep them from getting out in the streets and protesting, Akila. Uh, I, got, yeah. I got mixed feelings about it, you know, because I don't want people... I want people to risk their lives more than they already do, uh, mm -hmm. you know, but, but then on the other hand, you're right. I mean, you, you have a level of faith um, and maybe sometimes people, there are times in life, as Dr. King said, that you have to choose something for which you will die and, and I think that, people making that choice. I don't know. And so that was part of the motivation for going out there, right? Like everything that you are kind of wrestling with and should be people risk their lives to protest this? Do people feel, do, do the folks out there feel like they are risking their lives to protest this in one way, shape, or form? And do they feel that it's worth it? And, and, and to kind of begin to understand that or unpack that a little bit, because I think that that is a question that a lot of people are wrestling with, including protesters who are out there in and of themselves. You know, there are some folks who have been watching pro these protests unfold for days worried and afraid of not coming out because of the pandemic and then deciding kind of enough is enough, I need to be here. And so I do think that that is a legitimate um, area of debate. And I think it's one people are having internally with themselves, with their families and with their communities. Got and I think it's a telling debate, right? Like it is telling to have to ask yourself and to say, am I willing to sacrifice my life and sacrifice my community to this virus, you know, to, to exposure, to the potential of this exposure that is disproportionately killing Black people because of the structural racism that creates health disparities, because you have the structural racism built into police, you know, the criminal justice system killing Black people. And it's like, how do you... 
how do you wrestle with that? And you know, when when do you take this moral stance and say enough is enough? And I think those are that those are the questions that we were exploring and asking of protesters because they're asking it of themselves. Am I willing to risk sacrificing my own life to save my own life? Yes. And that's the paradox of our blackness at this moment. Uh, and it's it's burdensome, you know. Um, yeah, I'm not going to preach now, but <laughs> for, for for me and, and many of us in the kind of ministry I have in terms of, of black theology or black liberation theology, you know, the cross becomes metaphorical and it becomes even collective. So this is a cross we're bearing. Everybody I think you went out there and talked to was bearing a cross uh, and maybe two because just sitting at home like that right now. Mm-hmm. You know, even one of us could just be Breonna Taylor. Just sitting here, we bearing a cross because somebody might roll up in here, right? Um, but then you bear the other cross when you go out there and you face that COVID situation. So I'm going to, I'm going to, don't be mad at me. I'm going to put you on the spot. I mean, you went out there and covered this, but, but what, what do you think? Is, is it, is it, is it worth the risk? Is that a risk that you would continue to take on your own or would you, would you advise others in terms of taking that risk to going out and, and, and demonstrate in the middle of a pandemic? You, before you answer that, though, let's be clear. You've been covering this. Mm-hmm. You have information, I presume, about the state of the pandemic. In other words, you don't have information that says it's gone away mm-hmm. or it's going to get better or this is we, we can just relax now, right? I mean, do, does your information suggest to you that this thing might be with us and may come back and may resurge? Is that you, are you getting that information, too? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so having said that, what would, what would, uh, Akilah do or what would her mom say? I mean, what would, would, would I mean, look at what I did. You did, you did. I, 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 to me, it, it is a simple question of look at what I did. I thought this story was important enough to go outside and to talk to protesters. And the only way to find out, right. you know, when you put it so beautifully, right? Like if, if folks are wondering and questioning, if the only way to save my own life is also like sacrifices and put it out there was to be where people are and ask them that question. And I am the company I work for. I felt like that was an important enough question to ask to them to, to, to ask. And the only way to ask that is to be outside with the people who were protesting and to also kind of understand in my own mind that I could take all the precautions in the world. And I did, but there's only so much you can do you know, when you're out there with that many people, not all of whom are wearing masks, you know, the overwhelming majority were, um, and, you know, having shorter conversations outside and having more extended conversations later over the phone, and you, you, you make those precautions, but you were still very cognizant that you were out in the world interacting with people where social distancing and it's above 10 people and all of those things are, are very real concerns, absolutely. Yeah. So as healthcare is your beat, what's next, Akilah? What, what, what are you working on next in, in the midst of this uh, Rona and racism? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the body of work, and one of the things that I've been very interested in following and will continue to follow is that intersection of how, of how this pandemic is playing out and impacting and affecting um, Black and brown communities, marginalized communities, and 
what they impact and affect it in all of its forms and you know permutations moving forward. Um, that's kind of the lane that I'm in right now. Yeah. Yeah. You and so I just want to point this out. You've also written how COVID took Black Lives first. It didn't have to. Mm-hmm. So if if you could just give a synopsis, if you would, of that, because I mean we need to be clear. Our deaths weren't just some uh, genetic inevitability. Absolutely, absolutely. It did not have to be this way, did it? No, it did not. Which is why we go back to the racism in the healthcare system, right? And so, and and so, Black lives lost to COVID, and and so you hear a lot of conversation and a lot of talk about pre-existing conditions and comorbidities that that are higher in prevalence in black communities. And that's not just because black people are out here with diabetes and hypertension for genetic predispositions reasons. A lot of it, you know, stems to how societies and communities are built and shaped. And so um, that comes to food access and healthy food access and green space and being able to exercise. It comes from environmental justice reasons and the air that you breathe and how that impacts you know, your lungs and the weakening of the lungs that also puts you at higher prevalence for um, having worse outcomes for COVID and COVID-19. It has to do with access to care in the hospitals that are in black and brown neighborhoods and the resources that those hospitals have to care for patients with these complicated issues. It has to do with, you know, and, and folks not trusting those hospitals. You know, we, we looked at the first 100 deaths in Chicago and people are taking Ubers 30 minutes away from home with fevers of 103 degrees as opposed to going to the hospitals that are five minutes away because they don't trust those hospitals and they don't trust those hospitals because of the huge resource gap that exists, right? And so then you also have the, um, some doctors pushing back against what they've called the one size fits all kind of guidance that you're giving to people in terms of when to seek care what symptoms to look out for, you know, how you're interacting with the healthcare system and the medical system. And so that's when you talk to folks and they say it's all compounded, that's part of that compounding because yes, COVID-19 is, is, is killing black people at disproportionate rates, but it doesn't have to. It's not just a matter of happenstance. It's not, um, it's not a matter of happenstance and it's not a matter of just like, genetics and you know we don't want to unduly racialize COVID-19 as this like disease amongst black folks it largely has to do with the way that our communities and society have been built and designed mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you know interesting when you mention food deserts either e even because mm -hmm. <clears throat> here's another layer in this that I actually think you know a, a journalist like you might even want to take this on not to give you an assignment but <laughs> um especially in Minneapolis Akilah so you had folk that didn't look like us burning down stores with groceries and pharmacies in our communities that we are still needing. And now some of that stuff is gone, but they didn't burn down. They went and stood in front of the uh, DA Mike Freeman's house and didn't set that on fire. I mean, I know that for a fact, mm. you know what I'm saying. So and I'm not saying you should set the DA's house on fire, but I'm saying that it was interesting what was chosen to be damaged that also had a direct impact on our community in terms of resources that we normally don't have. That area where George Floyd was killed and at Target and all that. I mean, some that's that's the closest place some of them folk can go to get something to eat or go to the farm. So you burn that down, that's gone. 
But in other parts of town, mm, we're not going to burn this down. I thought that was kind of interesting. But so that's another layer mm -hmm. in terms of the intersection when it comes to what we lack and then what is also destroyed in our community, which oftentimes is also not our decision. You went to St. John's. You, you, St. John's revealed that a lot of this stuff is not directly coming from us because black folks don't burn down churches. I mean, we, that's just clear. We, that's just not something we do. Now, we might do something else. So, you know, I, I, I think that's another layer that complicates this because either businesses are closed and have abbreviated availability because of the pandemic or they're shuttered because of some of the, the protests that are a little more, shall we say, than just peaceful. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that just seems to me like another layer of this thing, you know? I mean, those are definitely things to think about as we begin to, to consider, and as you're talking, like second waves growing, outgrowth, and, and how to contain and, and, and stop the, the virus before... Um, you know, a vaccine is made because the other thing that the reporting on the Chicago, the first 100 deaths project, you know, that we hear and that we learn is that, and even the first story out of Milwaukee looking at um, early data of how the pandemic is affecting black communities. You can't just throw up your hands and say, oh, well, you know, it's happening. We have the data. Now we know, right? So data collection and, and part of this push is how do we direct resources to then um, repair these harms. And so that is a whole other conversation that is also happening and was happening, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and, and was, had a lot more oxygen. And then, you know, conversations are, but it is still happening, you know, and that is still, it's still happening. And, and there are still a number of legislators, many of whom are Black, who are pushing for that and are having that conversation to say, we are not asking for, for data to be collected just for the sake of, of counting. We are asking for data to be collected in terms of who this pandemic is killing and, and who is being infected by it so that we can direct resources to these communities to really get them the help. Um, and, and honestly, again, another intersection is people talk about defunding the police and some folk have a visceral reaction to that, I don't, but that's part of what you're talking about. You know, funds going to law enforcement that could otherwise be going elsewhere to address some of these other disparities you've described when it comes to health and other things. So, you know, if you put this obviously on a Venn diagram, all of this goes together. Um, but no, this is great, folks. Um, on the minds of Black Lives Matter protesters, a racist health system, of course, we all are thinking about both things. We've never had this happen before, a, a pandemic and a police-demic all at the same time. Uh, and it is disproportionately, obviously, affecting our people. So we're going to be heard. We will see what happens. We'll look forward to more reporting at ProPublica.org uh, from this uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning boss we've had on today. Appreciate you, sister, and uh, uh, thank you. I, I have to share this with you. You covered Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the night that the bomber was found in the neighborhood hiding in a boat. Mm -hmm. I, I covered that. Yeah, well, so I was doing, I was on there live in the evenings that night. Mm -hmm. a, a caller called in who was a neighbor, mm. took the phone outside. So we heard live 
on my show, on Make It Plain, the whole thing unfolds in real time, right on the air. It was like, and I didn't believe him at first. Like, where are you? He's like, this is what's happening. Then we turned on the television and everything he was describing on the phone that we were hearing was matching what was on the television. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was, it was, it was insane. But, um, but congratulations on your work and your coverage. Congratulations on this piece. And uh, I can tell from this that we're gonna, um, from this piece that we're gonna hear even more outstanding work from you and more outstanding coverage. And we're thankful for it, okay? Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. All right, it's a pleasure to have you. Please, please come back. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.